One of the most pressing challenges of our generation concerns energy and growing demand for it. It affects almost every aspect of our lives. How we work, how we travel, how we spend our free time, how we design cities or even how we think about the future of farming. And most of all, it affects our planet. In this podcast, we will talk about the future of energy, what are the biggest challenges for the grid operators and what are the ideas to meet them that we all, electricity users, will benefit from this. My name is Łukasz Gras and I will be your host for the entire podcast series we called Powering Low Carbon Communities with ABB. Let's start. In our podcast, we have already talked a lot about renewable energy. The level of certainty among experts is clear. We should make it as available as possible in terms of cost, production and distribution. But there is one more aspect I'm interested in. The point of view of someone who would like to implement such a solution, but who doesn't know where to start. And that's the most important thing. Who would like this process to be as simple as possible? To answer these questions, I have invited Marty Tivet, Global Solutions Architectures Director at ABB. Hello, Marty. Hi, Lux. How are you? Okay, fine. Thanks for joining me today. And uh, at the beginning, I will take on the role of a budding businessman, let's say, maybe even a startup. And let's say I am a CEO of a company uh, whose core business is, let's say, pharmaceutical. And I want to build a renewable power plant that will power my factories with 100% of green energy. Having no idea about it, what I should look for, to whom should I reach out? How can companies like ABB can give their support? Sure, sure. That's a great question. Uh, typically, what has, has been done... And, and I want to introduce the solution architecture approach to this as, as well. So normally the client will, or in this case, the pharmaceutical company will hire an engineering company or consultant, and then they will also have meetings with their utility partner and they will create a project and, and design. And, and most of that work will be hired by the hired consultant or the engineering company. What we do with a solution architecture approach and something that's often missed in creating one of these pre what we call pre-tendering or basis of design project is a lot of times we're missing that manufacturer or industry representation during those uh, early meetings to, to design the project. And so we created this, this team called solution architectures or solution architects that go out and work by segment. So in this case, we would call this uh critical power. So I would consider that the same as like data center, um, you, you know, some of the critical uh, pharmaceuticals and, and, and critical hospitals would all be a similar architecture. And so what we do as the architect team, we join that group of consultants and and, and the utility partners with the client. And we, we say, what is really achievable uh, from the manufacturing community and, and by design? So that's the element we're adding to this. And so there are a lot of pillars that go together. The, the main point of contact would be, in this case, would be the consultant, but they would work through uh, the manufacturer, through the architects. But uh, Mark, does it mean that uh, I, as an entrepreneur, can apply to one of your departments at ABB and get assistance plus, for example, contacts to your partners or... Yeah, exactly. So the way we're structured is structured really around segmentation. So we do a lot of work, say, in data center. And so for a data center solution architect, we, we have uh, 
points of contacts through our sales department. So normally what would happen, we would have a client, client approaches the consultant or ABB directly. And then we realize that's an opportunity to engage a solution architect into that consortium of, of people putting together this design. And then we work together. And a lot of our stuff is pre-engineered. So we may have a, already have a design that's catalog numbered and we can bring that to the table and help us, uh, you know, steer the design in a way that we know is achievable in the market. How many companies or subcontractors would uh, typically be needed to build such a business, almost entirely based on renewables? Do I need to be prepared to work with a wide list of companies? We try to keep it as simple as possible. And in this kind of example, working locally in the client's uh, community for, for the consultants. So if we're going to add um, uh, building integrated solar panels to the roof of a, of a pharmaceutical building, you would work with a local uh, solar integrator normally. And then that would kind of put all these pieces together so that you're not having to uh, bring too many parties to the table and you get that guidance early on in the process and you have a crystal clear design of what, what you can do in that local market because the rules and codes and standards vary uh, uh, wildly across the world. So it just depends on where you're at physically located. So the best first step is to start locally with a consultant in that that has experience in that region. But can we tell the numbers, for example, how many companies uh, is needed? Typically, you would have you would have the three um, company or two or three involved. You would have your consultant, you'd have your um, utility partner. Uh, those are the two primary uh, uh, entities that you need to hire as a client. So you'd you'd really have those two, and then we would add in the uh, as as the as the project matures, you would add in the uh, the manufacturing uh, design basis uh, piece. So so you could say two to four. Uh, depending on the complexity of the system. So it's not a lot. It's not a lot. No, no, it's not a lot. But what happens a lot of cases, if you don't have the guidance or understanding on how to put this together, you may involve too many companies and too many opinions and you, and you won't have a really good solution at the end of the day. So try to keep it simple and try is my recommendation and start with that uh, consultant in the local community. Yeah, right. I guess the more parties in this process, the more phone calls and emails it will take to fix a potential problem or, or malfunction. Am I wrong, Taf? Yeah, it's like a snowball, you know, it just keeps building yeah. and it's rolling down the hill. And, and you don't want that. You want to keep it simple. And, and I've seen some projects go really uh, chaotic and, and crazy where there's too many parties involved. And, and when we get back to the, the core of what the customers needs, then, then we can simplify uh, the parties and, and, and how to, to build a solution out. Uh, Martin, let's talk about uh, the consumer point of view. I would like to have as few as possible points of uh, contact to create uh, the solution and to keep it working, uh, preferable. Let's say uh, SPLC, single point of contact. Uh, is it even possible? Yeah, there is a single point of contact. Okay, so, so the way we define this uh, is, is kind of in three steps. So you have your, your pre-tendering, uh, tendering, and then project execution. So it depends on where we're at in the process. So what I call pre-tendering is, is at the, at the uh, designer stage, the, the architect that's, the, that's designing the building even. This may be uh, you know, one or two years before the building's even constructed on new construction. So you start there in the pre-tendering stage. 
and you and you build out that that process and then that gets handed over to now we need to buy product to put this in place that's the tendering and then the project execution is is once it's uh in uh, being installed that's that piece and then once you have it installed and to your point here it, you have really another three parameters you have the installation piece and then you have really the controlling and then you have the monitoring and servicing of the of the solution so the point of con you can have two points of contact really that on the pre-tendering side, so early, that would be the consultant and the solution architect, like my team. And then once it's installed, you could have a single point of contact, which is a service company that can manage all of the installation, the controls, and the maintenance, and, and even cloud-hosted asset performance management. So you can have kind of two points of contact early and then after it's installed. And I guess it's really difficult to uh, to point which which point is is the crucial, all are equal. Well, I mean they're all have merit in their own right, but if yeah. it's not designed properly at the very very beginning, then you're going to have problems downstream potentially, right? So I would say if I put precedence on one area, it's that pre-tendering portion where you, you hire the the right consultant in the local community that really understands what you're doing. They, they may be part of a national consulting firm too, but have that local experience, that local utility connection, and then uh, partner up with a manufacturer's architect for that segment. So if it's data center, if it's pharmaceutical, if it's utility, e-mobility. So we have architects that have experience in that. So I would say that's probably the most critical. Design it early, design it right, and then it will it will be a good project. Could you tell a little bit more about advantages? Because I would like to, to understand very clearly, what are the advantages of keeping it all in one place within one con contractor? You know, it has to be vetted out as a, as a quality contractor. Let's just say that first. But then, yeah, so if it's a knowledgeable contractor in that space, has knowledge around that design, they've either have experience, they've done it before. So what does that do? That reduces your uh, lead time, your supply risk, uh, risk across the board. Uh, they know about uh, total cost of ownership and paybacks and, and how to optimize uh, so, that, so that the investment is, is properly, uh, probably funded and optimized for long term. And so there's countless benefits when, when you're doing that, if they have the experience in that space. Now, from the solution architect side from ABB, we have pre-engineered, pre-designed solutions. So what that can do, if, if you can copy, say, 80% of that pre-design or 100%, you're saving lead time, you're saving cost, you're saving uh, risk, again, of installation because we've done it before. And so that's some of the advantages to, to keeping a qualified contractor and architect uh, early in the process. Yeah. Uh, Martin, now let's dive deeper into a very sensitive and, and very important uh, subject, uh, because in the age of digitalization and the fourth industrial revolution, cybersecurity is very important in that topic. Uh, the more systems and parties in the process, the more difficult it is to keep your system safe. And in the worst case scenario, to fix them. What is the security issue in this context? Yeah, so I like to define cybersecurity in this space of electrification and, and some of the renewable projects is two words, physical isolation. So we want to have, we don't want to have multiple uh, communication networks or say Ethernet cables connected to one common point for different applications. So 
uh, you want to run your critical processes on its own isolated network and then some of your uh, maybe cloud connected, um, internet connected uh, on a separate, um, completely separate uh, network. And that's the typical way we do it. And then between the utility, we will have a firewall that's isolated between the utility. So that way, information can't be uploaded um, to the system like a, like a threat or a, a virus cannot easily be uploaded. And then I like to, to design something, or our team likes to design it, where our, even our USB ports on machines that are local on a PLC or computer are blocked for upload. So without special, uh, you know, privileges and, and passcodes. So that way you got this physical isolation and you're, you're almost uh, guarantee or a better shape of having uh, that protection layer. Where we see a lot of the cybersecurity issues is when multiple critical um, devices in the facility are tied to the Internet and then they can be hacked through the Internet through a, through a gateway um, with, a, with a virus. You had Global Solutions Architectures Director at ABB. Uh, could you tell us more about what you do in a daily basis? On a daily basis, so we, we really uh, manage a team, a global team that, that's focused, as I mentioned before, on segments. So we have our data center experts and our e-mobility kind of experts in utility. And, and so what we try to do, though, is share best practices across all of those segments and across all of these expertise of these individuals. And then we... And then we really take a, uh, uh, you know, we have a project-based approach. So, you know, half the time we may be working on a specific project. The other half the time we're working on more R&D related activities. So we're taking solutions that we've developed and productizing them, giving them a catalog number like you would a product, like a, like a phone, you know, we're giving it a catalog number, but it's a, it's a multitude of products and, and solutions that come together to create this uh, this design. So we're, we're, we're giving it revision control and keep treating it kind of like an engineering approach. So that's how we operate on a daily basis. And, and the, the synergy is to really share these best practices across industries. And, and we've come up with some really neat solutions doing that. And uh, from your perspective, what was the biggest challenge in the age of, uh, let's say, pandemic, COVID-19 and the fourth industrial revolution? Yeah, for, for the biggest challenge for us has been really getting out and working face to face with the customers and 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 being on site with some of these uh, installations. I mean, we we've been able to function quite well in in the virtual environment, but that that element of the customer touch point has been missed uh, missed greatly. So um, so we're eagerly waiting for the days when we can we can do a little bit better uh, traveling and and connecting with the customers. Do you, do you like remote work or? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, you know, it, it has its pros and cons, but uh, I like a mixture myself. I've, I've When it first happened, I was like, oh, cool. I get to work from the home office for a while. I've never, never done that. And I've always been kind of envious and jealous of people that were able to work from home with that flexibility. But then after about a, you know, six months of that, uh, I'm like, I don't know if I like this that much. I need a mixture. So I want to go into the office. I want to meet customers and, you know, have that flexibility. But I think what's key is that flexibility is something I really, really like. And your employees, what do they say or think about it? Yeah. So, uh, so I have some employees that I've never met face to face yet. Wow. Yes. Really? So think about it. Virtual environment. They're in Europe. I'm in the U.S. Can't really travel there. 
Um, yeah, so we've done it all virtually, right? And um, hiring the whole process, right? So, but I have some that I've been working with for over a decade, so I know them quite well. So there's a good like dynamic, and we try to uh, you know build build some virtual relationships, you know, the best we can. You know, it's uh, it, it's a challenge, but it, it's fun and it's all right. Uh, but b before the pandemic, uh, did you travel a lot? Yeah, yeah, quite a bit. I mean, not like a huge percentage of time, maybe 35, 40% at most, uh, but it probably averaged closer to the 30. But I would, you know, I would schedule trips so that I could meet customers and my employees and, and various things at, at one time. And, and it really worked well. Um, you know, I'd like to get back to the point where we could travel, you know, 10%, 15% to visit customers and our teammates at least. But, but right now it's, it's very little travel. I do some local trips with customers and our factories and stuff that's nearby, but not a lot of um, uh, global travel anymore. And at the end, I want to ask you about the trends. Uh, in your opinion, which trend uh, is the most important in, uh, in the near future, let's say two, five years? Yeah, I would say, okay, in the renewables space, I think a lot of trends are happening on the load side or the user side, and that's around electric vehicles and what we call e-mobility, bringing electrification networks, you know, enabling those electric vehicles to be to be charged. And a lot of that will involve, like in some of your other podcasts, battery energy storage, hydrogen fuel cells, the hydrogen economy. So all of that is real, uh, what I call real today. And then over the next decade, it's going to really uh, uh, grow dramatically. And then I think some of the trends we're seeing in the technologies of solar panels, of batteries for battery storage over the next 10, 20 years, those will completely change. I mean, there'll be uh, revolutionary kind of energy efficiency gains by some of the new, um, new technologies coming out. But I think the growth is really going to be in the trends is really going to be around more the e-mobility and renewable space. Marty, thanks for the really interesting conversation and inspiring. Uh, I got answers to all my questions I wanted to ask. And basically, I only have one thing to do. You know, I'm going to go build a pharmaceutical company based on renewable energy. <laughs> wish, <laughs> okay. wish, me, wish me good luck. Uh, no, you got you to contact me, get your consultant, and then contact me and we'll get a, a person working with you. So. Yeah, I will apply for help. <laughs> Thank you very much, Marty. Thank you, Lucas. Have a good day. Stay safe.